everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series at Mabidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have liberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parsha Motot Masei covers six long chapters, chapters 30 through 36, that close the book of Abidbar. We begin with the laws of vows made by men and women. We move into war with Midian and the resulting material wealth retrieved from their encampment. This section teaches us both the legalities of Tvilat Kelim, of utensil immersion, and about Torah ethics of war. The Parsha ends with a tense conversation between Moshe and the tribes of Reuven and Gad who want to remain in the Transjordan and the agreement they come to that satisfies both sides. More on this episode in today's podcast conversation. Parshat Masei opens with a list of 42 stops the people took on their desert journey. It is a section that reminds us, among its many lessons, that the journey is often more important than the destination. This section is also an important summary, almost like a literary picture album, summarizing this formative 40-year period. The Parsha continues with laws of inheritance, how each tribe will receive its portion, the legalities of Levitic cities and cities of refuge, and concludes with the second half of the daughter of Tzlofchad story, this time the male perspective concerned with keeping land within their tribal possession. On one hand, it is a continuation that could have been included in Parshat Pinchas with the first half of the story. But on the other hand, it illustrates the real-life reality of land inheritance, which is detailed in the first sections of the Parsha. Today, I sit with returning guest, Hannah Lakshambab, who is a director of education and head of Judaics at Edu Together, which provides online courses for students in the U.S. She also teaches online for Lamdenu, a high-level women's learning initiative, and she has taught at Midrashat Lindenbaum and Midrashat Amudim. Hannah first joined us for episode 103, Parshat Shmini, where we spoke about the laws of Kashrut. Hannah, it's great to have you here again. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I, the first thing I wanted to say is that you just described Matod and Masse, kind of each, you gave each of it its own spotlight. But I'm actually really enjoying the fact that it is a double Parsha, because I feel like Matot and Masse actually function very well as a combined unit. And that basically the combined unit both kind of summarizes the desert journeys of B'nai Israel, but also lays the groundwork for B'nai Israel entering into the land of Israel. And that basically the sort of overall picture that is created from that is that this is a story of B'nai Israel transitioning from being a journeying nation to being a nation in their land. And the way that these Parshiot do this is that they kind of sandwich in the summary of the journeys in between 
first discussion about giving out the land into portions and second discussion about giving the land into portions. That before all of the journeys, we see the whole discussion that you mentioned about Ruvain and Gad and how they want to actually take a different portion in the land than what had originally been planned. And then after the part about the journeys, we go back to talking about the borders of Eretz Israel. We talk about the cities of refuge, which is basically something that also has to do with um, how we divide up the land and who's going to be living where. And then also, obviously, the second Benot Slavchad episode is also about how do we equitably divide the land. So that basically, we're kind of showing this transition by sort of presenting the journeys and the sort of look back on the journeys in the middle of this long conversation about how do we, how are we going to divide up this land. These journeys that are sandwiched in, in between these two things are actually something that really intrigue me because in a way they seem very boring. It's kind of just a laundry list of Vayisumi place A, Vayachanu be place B, Vayisumi place B, Vayachanu be place C, that they're just sort of listing where they went from the one place to the other place. You mentioned that there were 42 places. So it's basically a laundry list, although you described it more positively as a photo album. But I also feel like this list of journeys has has a great maybe one of the it's maybe one of the passages in the Torah that has the most resonance for us as Jews looking back on Jewish history as a whole because for most of Jewish history that's what we've been doing we've been journeying from one place to another settling in a place and then journeying again and I feel like even in recent memory all of us can kind of chart out the masse of our families um, whether it was you know from Europe or Russia or Arab countries to North America or to Israel or to one of those places via the other place. And so it's something that we really can all identify with is this uh, pattern. At the same time, um, and I think that for most of Jewish history, Jews read that part and it spoke to them. But the parts that come before it and after that about how to equitably divide up the land was something that was less relevant to most Jews throughout Jewish history. And one of the things that's amazing and that I want to acknowledge is that we are living in a time in Jewish history where those discussions about apportioning the land and about dividing things fairly within the land are conversations that we are lucky enough to be able to have. And that in some ways, I think we can see ourselves in 2023 as kind of equivalent to B'nai Yisrael in these show where we're kind of at a transition where on one hand we've been a journeying people for a long time but on the other hand we're really also settling into being uh, people in our land and to dealing with questions that are totally different questions than would be relevant when when we don't have a sovereign state that we have to govern fairly and equitably. So I really love that point for two reasons. The first is because I like this idea that different parts of the Torah are relevant uh, in different generations. And it's a deeper point than saying, oh, well, I read the Parsha last year and and I didn't think about that. But this year, there's a new point that, that is relevant to my life. It's a much deeper, more national idea of of the passages that have become relevant because of the changes of, of Jewish history. But the other piece I think is interesting is that once you look at it through that light and you say, oh, well, these travels of, of going one place, stopping, essentially that we're sort of nomadic, we were nomadic people for, for thousands of years against what we would have liked to have happened. 
is that the story of of Reuven and and God is an interesting complement because we on one hand we would say well the end of all of the journeys should ultimately be Eretz Israel. But of course, it isn't the case today, and that there are many who, for all different sorts of reasons, choose to dwell elsewhere. And so, while they don't, they aren't connected in that way. There's an interesting complement between those stories, of of here's a, a case that's made by two tribes, and it ends up being more than that, but by two tribes to say we don't want to go to that place that everybody thinks we should go. Again, I'm not getting to the question of whether or not it's you know legal Israel, not legal Israel. Uh, it's it's a more complex conversation, but I think that at least metaphorically, there's also something meaningful about about those pieces together of both the constant traveling, and about this idea that even when the broader Eretz Yisrael will become available for Am Yisrael, there still may be those for all different reasons who who are going to choose or to ask permission to to stay elsewhere. So so let's talk a little bit about the journeys themselves. Um, so. In general, <laughs> journeying is not the ideal state. We know that in the Torah, being a wanderer is a curse. It's something that Cain is cursed with in Breshit. We also know that obviously this particular wandering of 40 years is something that was imposed on B'nai Israel as a punishment. That's, you know, in uh, the sin of the Meraglim, God said, you know, very harshly that they were going to drop dead in the desert over the course of 40 years. It doesn't sound like there could be anything positive about it. But then you get to Parashat Masay, where these journeys are listed. And there is a feeling that something different is going on here and that it isn't necessarily a negative experience. And first of all, I want to tell you a personal reason why I don't necessarily, I've never necessarily seen the list of journeys as a negative experience, which is that when I was a kid, my father read the Torah a lot. And he had a custom that I actually have not seen much outside of it. I don't think it's common in Israel, but he had a custom of reading the Masaot, like the parts where it was just Vaisu this, Vayachanu that, reading those parts in the same tune as Shirat Hayam, in the same tune as the Song of the Sea, which just gives it a totally different vibe. It turns it into this kind of triumphant song about B'nai Israel journeying through the desert. And I was looking up why this custom arose. And one of the suggestions that I saw is that it was based on the Ramban, who says that when you read these journeys, one of the things that these journeys describe is how incredible it was that God managed to sustain B'nai Israel in the desert. And that listing all these places that are like God-forsaken places, in the middle of nowhere where no normal person could ever live shows us the greatness and just the miraculousness of B'nai Israel's existence during this time. And that therefore it kind of actually is equivalent to splitting of the sea. That it's, you know, it's like an awesome miracle that we're basically celebrating in Parashat Masay and we're, we're singing about it um, and the fact that God sustained us like that for so long. Right. The question is how much do we let the reason why we were was stuck there for so long taint what was there? I mean, even without being stuck there for 40 years, we were still meant to go through a miraculous experience in the desert. Okay, it was going to be shorter, but we were still going to survive. So I think that that's a really, a really interesting point. And it's also interesting because, of course, you have a lot of 
positive reflections about the about the desert experience. On one hand, the desert in, in Tanakh itself is used as a metaphor for difficulty, for a barren place, uh, but you also have it used in totally positive imagery in later prophets in, in Yirmiyahu. And it's interesting, I couldn't remember where, I know that Rabbi Sachs writes about this as well, although many scholars have been speaking about this for a very long time, which is I'm sure also where, where he saw it as he was familiar with all that scholarship. And you think like, oh, is that a rewriting of history? I mean, we're using this image of, of you know, walking after God blindly as, as we would uh, as we would a lover when we're, you know, newly, newly in love. And you say, well, what do you mean? That's not the desert experience. Desert experience was full of all these complaints and this whining and it was, it was a punishment. But the question is, I don't know, meaning are the prophets rewriting history or perhaps did they not look at the experience early on as negative also? Meaning once we got over the hump that it was extended by many years in order to essentially, again, as a punishment, the question is what, what positive perspective did the generation at that point have on the experience? Meaning how, how often were they thinking about it as a punishment as opposed to a journey they had to undertake to have ultimately be prepared to enter Israel, right? So the question is, who who rewrites that history? Is it is it the prophets or is it even the people themselves don't experience it as a daily punishment? Right, yeah, I think that that is a great question. And I also had been very much thinking about that Pasuk and Yirmiyahu because it's, it's so much romanticizing, literally romanticizing B'nai Israel's time in the desert. And that's a great question of whether B'nai Israel see it that way. We'll never know what they personally thought. But I did want to share two things that come up in the first Rashi on Masse that I think each give us a possible perspective. The first one is that Rashi, Rashi quotes to Midrashim. The first one points out that B'nai Israel didn't really have to travel as much as you think, which is sort of surprising. There are 42 stops, but he points out that of those 42 stops, 22 of them happened in either the first year or the 40th year, meaning that for 38 years, they only traveled 20 times. So they're actually like better than college students during that time. Um, <laughs> they're not schlepping around all that much. It's okay. And I thought that that was interesting because it kind of just raises the question of what exactly was going on during those 38 middle years. The Mepharshim generally agree that basically everything in Sefer Bamidbar happened either in the first year or in the 40th year and that none of there's nothing written about those 38 years. Um, even Ezra says there's no masse and no nivua, um, no stories and no prophecy. And one way to understand that is that that's sort of a negative, that God is kind of like not on speaking terms with B'nai Israel and just kind of being, kind of abandoned them for 38 years. But I always wonder whether like these sort of positive, wistful memories about the desert maybe are about those years. Because <laughs> that maybe if like we know that the first year had a lot of negative drama, we know that the 40th year also had a lot of negative stories. So maybe the 38 years were the good years. And right, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. And that's the, you know, and that here we tell the story of the journeys and we tell it in the positive way because maybe, maybe in between they were just beautiful times where they just walked together in the desert and they didn't have to, God didn't have to tell them off about anything and they didn't complain. And there was actually something very beautiful that happened during that time. 
We we briefly touched upon this in a previous episode, but I'll, I will just add that there's something there that reflects sort of like a negative bias, that the Torah itself tells us a lot about the negative stories. But when just regular stuff possibly happens, again, if you're not reading it through the lens of God didn't speak to Ami Israel, so that itself is negative. If you're reading it through the lens of it was just simple, so there wasn't much to talk about, it lends itself to looking at it possibly negatively. But your, your position says, well, maybe it was just good, so we didn't talk about it, right? And it's sort of like, you know, a spouse comes home and how was your day with the kids? Yeah, it was fine, right? Like it, if it was fine, it means it was pretty good. It was pretty good if there's nothing to report. But, you know, but then there's a lot to report when something bad happens. And and we tend, we often tend to not speak about the the sababa, right? The mediocre, the fine. Uh, and and what you're saying is it's not even just fine. It was probably, probably good. And maybe even the source of the blissful. That's a really important perspective, I think. Yeah, thanks. I think you're really right that like we don't do enough talking about the the good parts and that, you know, that's not news. Yeah. So um, the other thing that Rashi says, the, the second thing that Rashi says is that Rashi brings a midrash about a king whose son is sick and they go on a journey in order to heal him. And he, and the Midrash says that on the way back, after the son has been healed, on the way back, they're just like pointing out the spots. And they're looking and they're saying, oh, this is where we slept. This is where we cooled off. This is where your head hurts. Um, and so there's a couple things that I wanted to point out about that. First of all, the notion that a journey can be a healing journey. Um, and the notion that B'nai Yisrael come out of this journey stronger and healthier than they were beforehand. And, um, and that that's also like a very positive spin on the journeys. The second thing that I wanted to point out is that that moment of where they're talking, where they're looking back and they're reminiscing, this is where your head hurts. Um, at the time when the son's head hurts, probably it was very stressful and very scary. But afterwards, when the father and son are reminiscing about it, it kind of takes on a different, now that they're fine, now that the son is out of danger and he's healthy, now it's just kind of a, a reminiscence. It's like, yeah, I remember, and you hugged me, and you held me, and you took care of me, and that it, it kind of takes on this much more, that now that they've come safely to the other side, even the difficult things kind of take on a, diff a bit of a different tone, and they don't seem quite as difficult as they were at the time. Right. I think that's just also a matter of time, right? In a matter of time, it sort of smooths over the, those rough edges. It's sort of our, one of the, the big rules in our house is that no matter what happened, especially if it was a bad family experience, you take a picture when everybody is somewhat smiling. Because when they look back at the pictures later, they will never remember the negative parts. They'll just remember the picture that was saved. So I think that there's something to that here also, meaning he d there are mentions. And later, let's say when, when Moshe in the beginning of Dream mentions the stops, he's going to mention the negative stories that happen in them. But I think that there's, there's something healing at right? that time. Not only is the journey important and sometimes more significant than the destination, but that time itself smooths over those negative experiences in a way that that's healthy. Meaning, it's not it's not ignoring reality. It's that it's okay. We don't need to remember. We don't need to like get stuck in the in the in the muck of of all those negative experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we could also take that back to the comparison that I made at the beginning about kind of the history of the Jewish people throughout history being uh, sort of journeying a lot, because they're also like, I mean, in general, the reasons that Jews have traveled from one place to another have not been good reasons. Um, they've generally been because somebody was killing us or trying to kill us. But the fact is that over the many years of Jews living in many lands, we have been so 
much enriched by all of the cultures that we came into contact with. And at the same time that we can kind of hate the reasons that these travels happened, we can also really appreciate the positive things that came from having experienced all of these travels and sort of come into contact with all of these things. to talk about the stuff that comes around on both sides of the travels. And really, I feel like there are two stories that that really, I think, are good to read in dialogue with each other, because I think that they have a lot of points in common. And those are the story of Ruvain and God that happens before we list the travels and the story of sort of part two of Benot Slavcha that happens at the end of um, at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, because both of them have kind of a similar plot line that I just want to lay out. So the first thing is that in both cases, um, there is basically an initial assessment of the facts that Moshe then needs to rethink. So with Ruvain and God, Ruvain and God come, they make their request, they want to stay on the wrong side of the Jordan, and Moshe, the, the wrong side of the tracks. Yes, exactly. And Moshe's <laughs> initial assessment is this is a terrible idea. This is dangerous. This is harmful to B'nai Israel. It's going to demoralize everyone. We're not going to be able to fight. We're not going to be able to conquer the land. But then later they come back. They explain their point. They explain their interests and how they can also help um with the things that Moshe is concerned about, how they will, um, they'll, they'll fight, they'll, they'll be the advance guard, they won't settle in where they want to settle until everybody else has settled where everybody else is settling. And then afterwards, Moshe reassesses and comes to a different conclusion. Now, also with Benot Sofchad, we have that same pattern. Um, back in Parshat Pinchas, when Benot Sofchad came to Moshe, he spoke to God and there was an initial decision, which which was, yes, this is a good idea. We should give women, in this in this case where a man dies with no sons, the daughter should inherit. This is great. Um, and now Moshe is forced to confront that initial decision by the male relatives who come and say, well, there's this other consequence that's going to happen. If you do that, that now if they marry somebody from a different tribe, then their property is going to move from our tribe to a different tribe. And so Moshe has to reevaluate and come to a new conclusion. So, so both of these stories involve kind of needing to reassess and reevaluate an initial decision. That's the first thing. The second thing is that... Wait, you know, before you move on to the second thing, I'll just add one piece, which is that I think that when we talk about the maturation of Moshe, so there are some stories we spoke about earlier where they happen in Shemot and he doesn't get angry and then it happens in Bamidbar and he gets angry. I think that's something we see in both of these episodes is that there is a significant movement or development on the part of Moshe, meaning he also doesn't get angry. We end the book with, I, I, I don't know if I would call them positive stories, but there are stories of, of genuine dialogue that happen. Um, he didn't get angry in the story of Tzolfchad's daughters, but I think that these, these are two really meaningful ways to end the book in that they are very sort of a difficult, somewhat contentious conversations that Moshe is able to handle in a way that that is better than some of the other episodes in the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, 
I feel like there's we've seen people just talking at each other and not really listening. And here, like one of the amazing things is that there's real listening going on, but also just the the ability to to change your mind is something that I've always thought that if our leaders were better at recognizing when they were wrong, we would be so much better off. Um, and that here we see Moshe being willing to make an initial assessment, but also being willing to change it. Um, the second thing that's also really seems like just an amazing development is the ability to come to a conclusion that's going to be a win-win. Um, and both of these solutions are solutions that take into needs, take into account the needs of both sides. So one of the other really exciting developments that we see in Moshe's leadership here is that both of these stories end with a result that is a win-win situation. And this is also just a great contrast. You know, I was just thinking about uh, Parashat Korach, where like, kind of the choices are, it's a zero-sum game. Either you're right or you're dead. And um, now we get this situation where um, where there are solutions that really take into account both sides. So with Ruvain and God, the solution is that both were going to protect the interests of B'nai Israel, which are that they need everybody to be fighting and everybody to be conquering the land together. And we're also going to take into account the interests of Ruvain and God, which is that they want to settle in this this specific spot. And there is a way that we can achieve both of those things by having Ruvain and God fight together with B'nai Israel, and then only later take their portion in this land that has already been conquered. Um, and if, with Benot Tzavchad, also they find a way to, to come up with a win-win solution that Benot Tzavchad do get to inherit, but also they keep the inheritance within the tribe by marrying someone within the tribe. And I feel like it especially is noticeable in the Benot Tzavchad story where the language of the second story is very, very parallel to the language of the first story, um, just in general, like the, all of the words. And there are a couple of other parallels, but my favorite one is that um, in the first story, when Benot Tzavchad say their piece, Hashem says to Moshe, Kain Benot Tzavchad Dovrot. Um, Benot Tzavchad are right. Um, and now when B'nai, when the, the relatives come, then... Um, then the, the Torah says, Cain b'nei Yosef dovrim. It's the same language of they are right also. The male relatives are also right. And this this ability to um, to hold both truths, to be able to see two sides that are opposing each other as both being right is just like this, um, this wonderful thing that I think also has kind of continued in Jewish tradition, that kind of our tradition of machloket and of elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim is something that that I think we see here for um, one of the first times in the Torah and that we can really look at both sides and see the merit of both of them and then obviously also come to a conclusion that is going to be good for both sides. I think also something else that's really triumphant about these about these episodes is that the reason why the, the Tzrovchad example was successful the first time around and it didn't become some sort of like nasty fight is because the women come to Moshe with a clear claim. They speak their story. This is what happened to us. We really think that we're entitled to something else and we're coming asking you what we could do about it. 
And they really speak in I statements. They're not blaming Moshe. They're not yelling at him for not having, you know, gotten this before. Why don't you know, you know, why don't you know the laws of inheritance already? Why do you have to, right? Why isn't this something that's clear? Why isn't this something that we should have already learned? They're, they're not blaming anybody. They're speaking about themselves. And, and then there's dialogue that happens. Moshe doesn't know the answer. He asked God in one of those four, four places where he didn't know, he didn't immediately know the law. And, and it goes pretty well for everybody. And, this is, of course, the opposite of what happens in the Korach story. And I really look at the at Ruven and Gad, which I'll jump to in a minute, as sort of like the real repair, as a tikkun for the Korach story. Because if the Korach story was all about finger pointing and blaming and saying, you know, you're doing this, you're doing this, and I really should have this, but you're doing this and you're taking it away from me, that the Ruven and Gad story, which has the potential to be really explosive, like really, really explosive, they also, they come and say, this is what we would like, right? This is what will be good for us. And they don't say, you know, why are you making us go over to the other side? Why are you making us have to, you know, uh, squish our way into a smaller, a smaller allotment? They're not blaming Moshe. They're coming and presenting their case. It's what in sort of in relational therapy, we talk about an I statement versus a you statement. They're not pointing their finger at Moshe. They're saying, this is how I see it right now. Is there a way that, as you said, we could hold both of these, right? We could hold the space of both perhaps the entry to Eretz Israel or maintaining some sort of national unity. We can also maintain the position that we would like to hold, which that we'd like to stay in, in the Transjordan. And so that to me is like this massive lesson that they seem to have learned from the Korach disaster, right? N blaming and, and finger pointing isn't really going to get you anywhere. And so these are two just really like exemplary stories of how they're able to negotiate in, in a way that is that is effective because they maintain the I statement and then try and find a space for how this can function in the we. In the story of Benot Slavchad, it's the we of the tribe. And in the story of Reuven and God, it's the we of, of, of the entire nation that they want to separate, but they also want to maintain their solidarity with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something really just um, it's it's a really positive note on which to end the sefer with that it seems like Bnei Israel are entering into the land with these mature skills of being able to solve problems. Now this would be a great place for us to end, but I actually want to actually kind of be a bit of a downer now and talk about the fact that even though these two compromises are so glorious as they appear in the Torah, each of them kind of had some unintended consequences as the they, um, as they continued in Jewish history. And I just wanted to point that out. And I think that there are also some conclusions that we can draw from that. So I'm going to start with the Ruvain and God story. The Ruvain and God story, the thing that Moshe was worried about really was fine. Um, right? He was worried that they wouldn't keep up their end of the deal. They wouldn't fight with B'nai Israel. They did. They kept up their end of the deal. They fought with together with B'nai Israel. They did everything that they should have done. But at the same time, there were various other negative unforeseen consequences. And basically, basically the problem is that just being so far away caused them to become isolated from B'nai Yisrael. So just a couple of things that happen in Sefer Yehoshua, as soon as they go off to take their lands that is separate from everybody else, they build this Mizbeach. And all of B'nai Yisrael are like, what are you doing? Are you worshiping other gods? And they're like about to come and fight a war against um, Ruvain and God and half of Menashe and and 
the the tribes there have to kind of defend themselves and say no 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 we're just doing this so that we don't um, so that we don't forget about God and we don't forget that we're part of you in Safer Shof team there also is always this tension between the tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan that Devorah criticizes them for not joining in the war and then when there's this civil war against Binyamin um, the people of Yavesh Gilad which is one particular city on the wrong side of the Jordan also get punished for not joining in that war um, and then Yavesh Gilad gets picked on again in Sefer Shmuel when um, B'nai Amon come to attack them and basically say like see if you can get anybody to save you and in the end Shaul does come and save them but it kind of seems clear that if Shaul weren't to come and save them that like no one else was gonna do it um, and that that's sort of what's special about Shaul is that he kind of cares about this forgotten stepchild that nobody else really cares about according to Chazal based on um, a Pasuk in Malachim Aleph Perak Hey it seems that also the tribes on that side of the Jordan were the first to be taken into exile before anybody else and presumably to be lost to B'nai Yisrael and kind of what we see from all of that is that the deal was a fair deal but it still was really problematic to be so far away from everybody else that that's there wasn't really a solution for that even if they they did their best and they did their parts but just you know separating themselves from everybody else was still something that um something that was problematic yeah meaning that intuition of Moshe to reject it initially was a uh, was a correct intuition and that when you're when you're separated without you know clear methods of communication certainly in those days it was going to create a natural rift and you know you might say you I mean again I don't even going to bring in modern examples because I don't want to make this political but there are so many subgroups within within nations or within countries right whether city states that want to be independent and ultimately they do develop their own culture it's it's it, once you're physically separated that that's just a reality of, of what's going to happen so that initial that initial um desire on the part of Moshe to push away and to reject the suggestion, I think ha had a lot of merit. Uh, and while Reuven and God tried for as long as they could to uphold the solidarity that they wanted to, that they wanted to preserve, there's just sort of a geographical reality that's unavoidable. I agree with that point. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely true. Um, and I think that the Benot Slovchad, the way that Benot Slovchad turned out differently actually provides a good counterpoint to what happened with um, Ruvain and Gad. Because what happens with Benot Tzlovchad is that it sounds like the Torah has a solution that is the solution, which is if you are a daughter who inherits, then you have to marry somebody within your tribe, period. That's it. Um, but Chazal assume that that Chazal basically interpret these psukim as being only specifically for that generation, and that for future generations, actually, daughters are allowed to marry whoever they want, even if they inherit property. And um, in the Gemara, a couple times they talk about this, and they talk about Tu Be'av, um, which is kind of the the Jewish um, day of celebrating love and marriage, as as being the day that the Shvatim were allowed to intermarry. And what they mean by that is the day that the rabbis made this ruling saying that Benot Slavchad, not Benot Slavchad, saying that for, that unlike Benot Slavchad, who had to marry men in their tribe, that from now on women who 
inherit property are still allowed to marry somebody outside of their tribe. So that didn't actually turn into a solution that continued for a long time. And I think that what this is also, I, I think that the reason that Chazal didn't want to sort of continue this forever is that they saw that all of this tribalism and tribal separation wasn't doing anybody any good and that it was better to, um, to, to not be perpetuating these separations of the tribes. And that I think that kind of both of these stories, the story of what happens with Ruvain and God when they're just too separate, and the story of Benot Slavchad when they're trying to maintain the distinctiveness of the tribe, is that in the end, kind of the, the direction that we go in with both of them is that less separation between tribes is better. And that um, more unity is always going to be a good thing. And that making distinctions that draw us apart, whether they are geographic distinctions, whether they are marriage um, restrictions, is not, is not going to be good for us. And that it's better for us to just be more unified. I think that, that that point has resonance both in the biblical period and also in the modern period. In, in the biblical period, there is a huge question, why why tribes to begin with, right? Why was that sort of put in as initial DNA? Why did we initially have these sort of intuited partitions between us? And while there is, you know, some benefit to there being different defined um, personality types, so to speak, of the different tribes, uh, over time, it, it does seem to have led to a tremendous amount of division and lack of understanding. And I think that we really see the flip side of that in Israel today, meaning people still tend towards tribalism. And I'm using that word now provocatively. I don't really mean that in the actual sense of tribes, but the tremendous benefit of of being, I find, of living in modern Israel, is I, I feel that my life is, is much more diverse in that way because I've met people who have who have roots in so many different lands, which to me is sort of like the modern version of tribes, you know, and you see how different Jews are practicing halacha and you are influenced by different foods and different spices and, and, and all of these, all of, it's sort of very enriching to have those different flavors, right, both metaphorically and physically, sort of be be part of your life. And I think that in modern Israel, and we see this also in the halachic world, how simply the coexistence of, of different forms of halachic decisions living uh, living together are influence, influencing one another, meaning the lines between them get blurred, not only because people are marrying each other, but also because, well, if that's the way it's being practiced by them or by that group for many years, it ends up sort of trickling into the practices of other groups. So I think ultimately we're seeing sort of the flip side of that in, in modern Israel today. Uh, however, it, it is at the root of who we are as a people, and I think that it still is an interesting question to tackle why 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 God wanted that, uh, wanted it to function that way. I think part of it was a survival tactic for how people could survive in the ancient world. They, they, they survived in tribes because that's what worked. Um, but ultimately, in the way we live today, we, we naturally form into smaller subgroups. But ultimately, I think that there's something very healthy about sort of the, the big mishmash or the melting pot that's become the you know, Jewish life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And and it's interesting that you now talked about tribes as being people from different places, because that comes back to the first thing we discussed, which was kind of the wanderings of B'nai Israel and how yeah. it has affected us. And so now here we are in Israel trying to kind of blend together all of these different experiences and trying to come up with something that is a unified whole. 
right? Which ultimately is enriched by all the the small parts and the and the and the lands and and the journeying that everybody has has undertaken to get to this place. Yeah, Chana, thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciate you coming back and speaking with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it too. This brings our series on Ramitbar to a close. These episodes were diverse as they explored the emotional and religious maturation of the people and of Moshe. Some episodes were more textually based, while others a bit more psychologically analytical. I love how each chosen angle brought out utterly new ideas I never would have thought about prior. We hope you enjoy the different voices that illuminated the Parsha each week. The upcoming series on Dvarim is titled Dorhaim Sheikh, Messages for a Lifetime. Each episode explores Moshe's educational message for the people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. I guess this is a good time as any to announce that I will be taking a break for the book of Dvarim. I gave birth to a beautiful baby boy in the middle of Bamidbar and will be taking the summer off to enjoy him, rest, and prepare new episodes for you for the book of Breshit. The amazing Rivi Franco will be taking over as host. She and I will converse for Parshat Dvarim, but after that the baton will be hers and she has a wonderful lineup prepared for you. We will meet again for Parshat Dvarim as I take the seat of guest and have a special bonus episode planned for Tisha B'Av that will pop up on our feed. After that, we will meet again for Parshat Breshit. Looking forward. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.